in depression, for example, what tends to happen is that sleep and circadian rhythms are disrupted prior to a depressive episode. So it's a very good predictor of impending poor mental health. And it's also been demonstrated that sleep and circadian rhythm disruption in middle years can be a risk factor for dementia in later years. That's Professor Russell Foster, head of the Nuffield Laboratory of Ophthalmology and director of the Sleep and Circadian Neuroscience Institute at the University of Oxford. His career has been dedicated to deepening our understanding of sleep and 24-hour circadian rhythms, applying this knowledge to improve health and quality of life. His research findings and their implications are shared in his book, Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock, and how it can revolutionize your sleep and health. I'm Luann Heinen, and this is the Business Group on Health podcast, conversations with experts on the most relevant health and well-being issues facing employers. Today, Russell Foster and I have a wide-ranging conversation about circadian rhythms, including how the timing of when we eat, exercise, and take medication can change health outcomes, and factors that influence circadian rhythms for better or worse, and the implications of this field of research for us all, including medical professionals and the public. Today's episode is sponsored by Day2, a precision nutrition solution using the world's most advanced proprietary microbiome science. Leveraging food as medicine to improve metabolic conditions and overall health, Day2 uses an individual's gut microbiome data to predict blood sugar response and assign a personalized score for each food before the first bite, helping make small adjustments with big results. Russell, welcome to Business Group on Health podcast. I'm absolutely delighted to join you, Luan. You know, sleep is very much on people's radar. People pay attention to it as a health and well-being priority. We track it. We worry about quantity and quality. And the relationship between sleep and circadian rhythms isn't necessarily fully understood. We know circadian rhythms is a bit broader. What exactly are circadian rhythms? Yeah, Um Essentially, you can think of circadian rhythms as an internal biological representation of a day. So we genuinely have an internal clock with a period of around about 24 hours. And we use this to adjust essentially every aspect of our biology. If you think about it, for our biology to function, we need the right stuff at the right concentration, delivered to the right tissues and organs at the right time of day. It's the circadian system that gives you this wonderful structure in both time and, of course, within the space of the body. Why do we need it? Well, we live in an incredibly complicated world. We're on a planet that revolves once every 24 hours. The response of essentially all life on the planet has to adapt to the huge changes in light intensity and temperature and all the rest of it. And so many creatures have divided up the earth on the basis of being either day active or night active. And those are profoundly different states. And so we have to have a very, very different biology to adapt to either consciousness for us, the wake state, or sleep, which is, of course, a profoundly different state and requires a different metabolism, a different level of brain activity in certain uh, specific regions of the brain. And it's the circadian system that gives you this timing. You've written a wonderful book on the subject, and you've said that each of us need to align or set our internal clock to the external world. How exactly would we do that? Well, there are a number of ways. It's great having this clock, which is, of course, fine-tuning our physiology and behavior to the very demands of the 24-hour day. But unless it's set to the external world, it's of no use whatsoever. Classic mismatch, of course, with the internal and the external day will be jet lag. I work closely with blind veterans in both the UK and the USA, and those individuals have no eyes, or many of them have no eyes, or very uh, radical damage to the eye. Without the eye, you can't detect the light-dark cycle. And so what happens is the clock just drifts off. And for most of us, about 90% of us, the clock would get later and later and later. We'd see this as getting up and going to bed around about five or 10 minutes later and later each day. And so what we need is daily exposure to the light-dark cycle. And that's the primary way in which the internal clock is set to the external world. Now, it's not the only factor. So when we eat and when we exercise can also help in train uh, regulate our circadian system. But light is by far the most important factor. 
So I would vouch that most of us really are not thinking about setting our internal clock to the external world. We tend to think we've progressed. We, as a modern society, do what we want, whatever time we want. You know, we work night shifts. We do travel across time zones, as you mentioned, without skipping a beat. We stay up till 2 a.m. on Saturday night and catch up on Sunday. Yeah, I think uh, uh, we are a supremely successful species in so many ways. And that's because we have a profound sense of arrogance. We, as you rightly point out, feel that we can do whatever we want, whatever time we choose. And of course, we can't. We are the product of tens of millions of years of evolution. And we can't just abandon that biological baggage. And so we can't do what we want whenever we choose. We are bound by our internal clock, which of course is set to the external world. And I think you've said that the amount of sleep we get is less critical than aligning our sleep to our circadian rhythm. Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, what I think is incredibly important is to appreciate that we are all remarkably variable. So the sleep duration that we may need, depending on who you are, can be as little as six hours. And genuinely, some people can manage on six hours. Others need 10 and a half or maybe even 11. Certainly when we're younger, we'll need much more than 10. In fact, when we're babies, of course, uh, we may sleep 18, 20 hours a day when we're first born. That changes as we age. But there's huge variability with sleep duration, but also sleep timing. So some of us are genuinely larks. We like to get up early and go to sleep early. Others are owls and we go to bed late and get up late. And there's a biological basis to all of this. And this is called our chronotype. Essentially, what type of body clock, what type of circadian system we have. And you can answer, you know, you can find out what type of body clock you have, what type of chronotype. There's a questionnaire in the back of the book, a Lifetime, but there are lots of questionnaires you can also take online. So our chronotype can be defined on the basis of three things. One is our genetics. So we now know that there are tiny changes in some of the critical clock genes that can predispose us to want to be a morning type or a late type or, of course, an intermediate type. So by our genetics, our parents are still telling us what time to get up and go to bed. (laughs) The second is our age. So from about the age of 10, there's a tendency to want to go to bed later and later and later. And this peaks in our late teens and early 20s. Men tend to peak later than women and tend to have, on average, a later chronotype. And then we'll move to a more morning chronotype as we age. So by the time we get to our late 50s and early 60s, we're getting up and going to bed at about the time we got up when we were 10, 11, 12. And significantly, that is about a two-hour difference. So somebody uh, in their late teens, early 20s will want to go to bed approximately two hours later than somebody in their late 50s and early 60s. So that's a significant amount. So asking you know, a teenager to get up at 7 o'clock in the morning is a bit like asking a 55-year-old to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning. That's the sort of impact. So there's a biological basis for that. So we've got our genes, we've got our development, and that's closely linked to changes in some of the puberty hormones, the sex steroids, rising rapidly during those early years and then declining slowly as we age. But there's a third factor which determines our chronotype, which is when we see light. We've said that light is critically important for setting the clock, but light has different effects at different times. So dusk light delays the clock, will make us get up later and go to sleep later, whereas morning light means that we'll get up earlier and go to bed earlier. So when we're all agricultural workers, we were exposed to a symmetrical light-dark cycle. And so the delaying effects of light at dusk and the advancing effects of light at dawn would be sort of compensated. They'd self-correct. But many of us now only sample part of the light-dark cycle. We live in dim-dark caves, essentially. We did some studies a few years ago on university students all around the world and showed that the later the chronotype, the more owl-like they were, the less morning light they actually detected, which would advance their clock, make them get up earlier, and they got much more early evening and dusk light. So that shifted the clock to a later time. So we have our genetics, we have how old we are, and when we get light exposure. And that all adds up to the type of sleep-wake timing that each of us will experience. So now I'm suddenly thinking this is a bit of a 
segue. If you're partnered with someone of the, the opposite chronotype, what recommendation do you have? <laughs> well, there's, there's some. There's one study which I rather like, suggesting that the longest surviving relationships are actually between morning types and evening types, which I think is interesting. Now, the cynic might suggest that's because they didn't see each other much. I don't hold with that. If you can accommodate the sleeping habits of your partner and that may be very different then all of the other sort of things that life throws at you are sort of you, it shows you're a relaxed and flexible sort of person so you can you can deal with it there are issues of course about sh sharing your sleeping space w w with a partner so for example if they snore and you can't accommodate the snoring with or deal with the snoring with um with earplugs then my sort of strong recommendation is if you can find an alternate sleeping space you'll be far less irritated with your partner and in fact you can you know it's not the end of a relationship as, as so many people say oh, I can't possibly you know sleep apart it means that it's the, the end of our relationship it's not it's the beginning of a new one because you can then be fresher you can enjoy each other's company you'll have a greater sense of humor and of course aristocrats and the very rich have had alternate sleeping spaces for hundreds and hundreds of years yes we've all watched the crown Indeed, yes, exactly, yes. Well, what are some of the ways ignoring circadian rhythms may catch up with us? Because we seem, many of us, to be on that path. Yeah, and I think it's important, you touched on this earlier, but it's quite difficult to make a clear distinction between the impact of circadian rhythm disruption and sleep disruption. The two systems are, are, are very intertwined, and we've done lots of interesting new stuff on that. In fact, you know, uh, for example, if you don't get very much sleep, that can actually de sensitize the circadian system to light. So there are lots and lots of reciprocal relationships. And so what we tend to, to use the term now is sleep and circadian rhythm disruption or SCARD. And the consequences of SCARD are very wide ranging. We can sort of think about um, the impact of SCARD on our emotional responses. And so we find sort of fluctuations in mood, irritability, increased levels of anxiety, loss of empathy. I think this is a very interesting one. We actually fail to pick up some of the social and emotional signals from from other people, our, our partners or our work colleagues or our friends. Um, risk-taking in impulsivity. You do stupid and unreflective uh, things if you've got sleep and circadian rhythm disruption. Very interesting studies have emerged showing that the tired and circadian disrupted brain has what's called a negative salience, which means it remembers negative experiences but forgets the positive ones. So one's whole worldview is biased by, and, and one's decision making is biased by these um, recollections of negative rather than positive experiences. You can also slide into sort of stimulant use. So if you're tired, you'll want to drive the waking day with excessive coffee, perhaps. Then, of course, you need to turn that off because caffeine in coffee has a long half-life. It hangs around in the body for quite some time. And people will then use alcohol or sedatives to reverse those effects of the alerting effects of, of caffeine. And the problem is they are sedatives. They don't provide a biological mimic for sleep. In fact, they can disrupt some of the really important things going on within the brain whilst we sleep. So there's some of the emotional things that can be affected. Well, let's just stop right there and recap. Yeah. That was huge. So emotional response, yeah, risk-taking and impulsivity, and remembering the negative and forgetting the positive. I mean, those are really sobering. And those are the kinds of things that we might not realize in ourselves. Well, I think that's a really good point because the tired brain is often so tired it can't detect how tired it is, and 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 it, and we and we can delude ourselves to thinking that we're we're far better able to cope than than uh, we are. I mean, it's that classic uh, risk taking and impulsivity. Yes, I think I can make that red stoplight. Well, no, you can't, and you wouldn't do it um, under normal circumstances. But if you've got scarred, if you're chronically sleep deprived, uh, then then you're going to uh, you know, make those stupid and impulsive uh, decisions.
Okay. I know we're not through the list. What else? <laughs> so, okay. We're not even halfway through. Um, so let's now think about some of the cognitive responses. So overall, our ability to process information is, is impaired. Our ability to multitask. And of course, that's what we humans are brilliant at under normal circumstances. We're flooded with lots of sorts of bits of information and we extract from that the most important and respond to it. So, so, so with all all of the stuff coming in, we can make decisions. We fail to multitask when we have scarred. Memory consolidation, the failure to lay down, you know, facts and experiences that we've encountered during the day. But it's not just memory. It's also information processing. Some really wonderful studies have shown that um, proper uh, sleep uh, allows us to problem solve. I mean, our grandparents often said, you know, sleep on it. And many of us, I think, anecdotally can sort of remember waking up and having found the solution to a problem we've been thinking about. And that goes. I mean, our ability to, to process information uh, it, it goes very poorly, uh, very badly when we don't get the sleep that we need. Our communication skills, our decision-making skills, our creativity and productivity all decline. And overall, our, our social connectivity, our ability to act as a member of a group fails. So that's some of the cognitive responses. And we, of course, just discussed the emotional responses. But the longer-term impacts upon our physiology and health can be profound. So... A relatively short amount of sleep disruption can provide daytime sleepiness and micronaps in the United States. It's been estimated between 100 and 300,000 crashes on the freeway system are associated with falling asleep at the wheel and, and just falling asleep. There's a study in the UK on junior doctors showing that after the night shift, 57% of junior doctors had either had a crash or a near miss on the drive home. We show altered cardiovascular responses, higher rates of hypertension, for example, altered stress responses. We tend to be overly stressed, lowered immunity, high rates of cancer. I think this is really interesting. In fact, the World Health Organization has now said that night shift work is a probable carcinogen on the basis that long-term nurses and other individuals who are undertaking night shift work have higher rates of colorectal cancer, breast cancer, and some studies on airline pilots showed that there are higher rates of prostate cancer. So I think that's a really very interesting and something rather sobering that we need to be aware of. Our metabolic systems can be completely distorted so higher rates, really much higher rates of type 2 diabetes and obesity in night shift workers and other groups who are chronically sleep deprived. Very importantly, our moods and depression and psychosis can be made much worse as a result of SCARD. We've done quite a bit of work in this area. And a colleague of mine, Dan Freeman, in psychiatry here in Oxford, looked at the impact of insomnia, really quite severe sleep disruption, on a range of psychiatric um, parameters, including one's cognitive abilities and one's levels of anxiety and found that you could actually decrease these levels by improving sleep. We also know that in depression, for example, that what tends to happen is that sleep and circadian rhythms are disrupted prior to a depressive episode. So it's a very good predictor of impending poor mental health. And just to complete the list, it's also been demonstrated that sleep and circadian rhythm disruption in middle years can be a risk factor for dementia in later years. And this has been known for some time, and now we have some mechanistic explanation. So, for example, there's a recently discovered sort of brain filtering mechanism called the glymphatic system. And this will get rid of misfolded proteins called beta amyloid. And beta amyloid accumulation within the brain is associated with dementia and Alzheimer's. And so whilst we sleep, we're actually getting rid of some of these misfolded and toxic proteins. And I wouldn't say that poor sleep is going to cause dementia. But if you are sort of at risk of developing dementia, then poor sleep in the middle years could certainly be a risk factor. My goodness. Well, so how can people who are living in, you know, in the modern world and have all of the sort of 
social pressures and work schedules that lead us to social jet lag that you referenced earlier, which is when our, our obligations and or our recreation takes us away from our natural circadian rhythm and we may be out of touch with it. We can assess our own chronotype and what else can we do to understand if we're possibly in this state of sleep and circadian rhythm disruption and, and how to get out of it? I think that's a critical point. And of course, we are so different that we need to take some ownership of this. And so how do you know if you're not getting enough sleep? Well, if you feel you can't perform optimally at your peak during the day. And I think we all get a sense of, yes, I, I'm really on fire today. I, I'm firing up you know, on all cylinders. But if you oversleep extensively on free days, let's say the weekend, or when you go away on holiday, that's a sign you're not getting enough sleep routinely. If you're dependent upon an alarm clock or somebody else to get you out of bed, you're not waking naturally, again, suggesting you're not getting the sleep you need. If you take a long time to wake up, if you've got sleep inertia, that's another sign. You're feeling sleepy, irritable, and fatigued when you are awake. If you crave a nap during the day, if you find, again, you're doing overly impulsive and stupid things. If you're craving caffeinated and sugar-rich drinks, that's all telling you you're not getting enough sleep. And also, we're very bad at this. We need to listen to our friends, families, and work colleagues. You know, if they say you're increasingly irritable, um, you don't seem to be as empathetic as you were. You seem to be more disinhibited. So that can tell us that we're probably not getting the sleep that we need. And as I say, there's huge individual variation. It changes as we age, but we must be tuned in to those sorts of issues. It is a little bit complicated for non-scientists to understand we have all these, you know, clocks in our body. And it's not supported by most primary care physicians or the, the medical community. They haven't asked about sleep or let alone circadian rhythms, and at least not in my experience. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think there are a number of reasons for this. We're a relatively new field. And up until fairly recently, I mean, after all, the Nobel Prize was given to three researchers from the States who were the first to discover the molecular basis of the circadian rhythms, the clock, it, not in humans, but in a, in a fruit fly. It was a phenomenal achievement, one of the great success stories in neuroscience over the past 100 years. Uh, but that was 2017. And so Certainly when I was going to meetings, we were 120 people maximum. Now we're thousands of people that attend our meetings. People will understand what sort of is broadly meant by a circadian rhythm. So I think it's a, we're a new field. The medical curriculum, and I teach pre-medical students, is crammed to bursting. And so trying to get lots of education in this area is tricky because, you know, you're fighting with your colleagues, you know, who, who say the heart should get more lectures or the kidney or the gut or the brain. So you're fighting to squeeze the subject in. And, you know, in a five-year pre-medical training, uh, many medical students may get one or two lectures. That's it. And it won't be the sorts of things that we're talking about. It'll probably be about how the EEG, the electroencephalogram, changes with different stages of sleep. So it isn't directly mapping on to uh, health. So there's a lack of education. But I think the third area is when I talk to my family and medics, I sort of say, why aren't you paying more attention to, you know, drugs at specific times of day, chronic sleep de deprivation, the importance of circadian rhythms. And they will respond that, you know, our healthcare professions are running as fast as they can to stay where they are, classic sort of red queen, and trying to just impose yet another layer upon the things they have to think about. Their brain is full, in a sense. Um, and until we can really demonstrate the importance of circadian rhythms to individual health, I don't think they will pay attention, which is, again, why I wanted to write the book Lifetime, to make it accessible so that patients will then ask their doctor, well, what time should I take my medication? You know, is there a time factor here? I'm chronically tired. Why is this? What can I do? And so that will encourage our medics to try and go into the literature and find out more about the extraordinary level of science we actually have describing the health states, circadian rhythms and sleep. So I think we're doing catch up is the short answer to all of this. This is the Business Group on Health podcast, and I'm speaking with Russell Foster, an expert on sleep and circadian rhythms. In the second half of the show, we'll talk about everyday implications of his work. 
In the United States, 1 in 10 adults have type 2 diabetes and 1 in 3 adults are overweight. Day 2 believes that with the right knowledge about your personal biology, food can easily be used for meaningful and sustainable clinical impact. Using gut microbiome profiling and machine learning algorithms to predict blood sugar response to foods, Day2 empowers members through an easy-to-use digital platform to make small, highly personalized tweaks to their nutrition plans. This garners significant results, including weight loss, A1C reduction, improvement in energy levels and sleep quality, and reduction or elimination of prescription medications. Instead of removing certain foods from an individual's diet altogether, Day 2's proprietary algorithm suggests food combinations that are unique to the member's microbiome makeup, taking the stress out of food choices. To learn more, go to www.day2.com or email us at contact at day2.com. Picking up on your book and some of the really some practical information that's included therein, um, let's talk about timing and impact of exercise, eating, yeah, taking medications. Yes, I think this is really interesting. So exercise, we kick off with, with exercise. So during the sleep state, we are mobilizing stored calories to keep our metabolism going and our life going. During wake, of course, we're taking calories in because we're eating and we're burning those calories to sustain our metabolism. So our metabolism is fundamentally different during the sleep state and the wake state. And one argument for exercise is that uh, when you wake up, do some exercise before breakfast because that's much more likely to burn off stored calories so if, if you know if you want to lose weight then uh, burning off those stored calories can be good the problem is that first thing in the morning we're not great at exercise the amount of power we can exert and the sort of energy we can commit is relatively low and our ability to exercise increases throughout the day and it peaks late afternoon early evening that's when all the olympic records tend to be set is that regardless of chronotype so even the large ah no i was going to come to that it's a really important point because if you're a morning morning chronotype your your athletic abilities will peak earlier in the day and there's been some lovely studies on this if you're a late chronotype they will peak you know late afternoon and early evening and so we've selected really for people that can perform better later in the day in terms of their exercise i think i cut you off you're about to talk about records being set yeah so if you if you look at when the, the the finals for the big races and the big you know sporting events they tend to be always late afternoon early evening because it's sort of kind of known that that's when records are broken and of course when people have big games they want records to be broken so that's when they when they have their, their finals uh, late afternoon early evening um and so the suggestion for exercise is that a short bout of exercise before breakfast, you know, can burn up some of those stored calories. But then exercise later in the day, late afternoon, early evening, means you can exercise for longer and with greater power. And so a longer bout of exercise later in the day. But you're quite right, depending upon your chronotype, what time that will be. I mean, if you're a, an extreme lark, then you'll be doing it sort of early afternoon rather than late afternoon, early evening. The bottom line is we're exercising twice a day. <laughs> well, I'd, ideally, yes. Um, but if you want to do it for longer with greater vigor, then you're going to do it before you go to bed. And that's great because what that will also do is burn off some of the stored calories that if you haven't used up will be laid to fat and uh, to stored calories. So it's good to get rid of those calories if that is an issue for you. That's part of the, the, the issue. The other thing is that the circadian system is constantly gating our metabolism. So for example, if you have the same level of, in, of, of glucose infusion, and some wonderful studies from Ed Van Kouter, University of Chicago, did this in, in healthy young males, and showed that same levels of glucose in the morning, lunchtime, and evening, those glucose uh, levels will come down much faster in the morning and at lunchtime than if you consume a large glucose meal later in the day. 
And so eating late in the day, high sugar meals has been associated with a greater chance of type 2 diabetes because the metabolism isn't there to sort of get rid of this glucose. So you sort of then develop a glucose intolerance. So exercise two times of the day, short bout in the morning, and then a long bout um, later in the day. Make sure it's not too close to bedtime because you don't want to increase core body temperature immediately before you go to bed because that will mean it'll be more difficult to get off to sleep. Part of the process of going to sleep is a drop in core body temperature. And if you've done very rigorous exercise close to bedtime, you'll raise core body temperature. So be careful of that. Eating, try and concentrate your calories during the first half of the day and have a, a lighter uh, end of the day. Now, of course, that's what people used to do in medieval times. Um, you know, in Tudor times, the main meal of the day was what we would call lunchtime. And it's because, of course, we sort of reorganized our, our work life. So instead of um, going home for lunch, as many people did, even my grandparents' generation, uh, you lived and worked fairly close to where you lived and worked. Um, and now, of course, with long commutes and uh, having to spend one or two hours getting into work and then getting away from work and the demands of work, many people will have a, almost no breakfast, have maybe something light uh, uh, at lunchtime at their desk, and then have the huge great calorie intake at the end of the day. Um, our bodies can't deal with it as effectively and that massive glucose and calorie intake at the end of the day is associated with a higher chance of obesity and type 2 diabetes yeah and then there are the night eaters even the you know can't sleep get up and eat at night absolutely and of course shortened sleep duration has been associated with uh, greater chances of obesity. There seem to be several factors going on here. What's quite interesting, and again, work from the University of Chicago has shown that if you, uh, again, using healthy university students, if they were only given four hours a night to sleep, then their hunger hormone went up, I think it was something like 27%. Ghrelin, the hunger hormone went up. The satiation hormone leptin went down by something like 17%. And at the end of uh, about a week, uh, carbohydrate consumption had gone up by 35 to 40%. And they were becoming glucose intolerant after that relatively short period of time. So one of the problems is that if you are sleep deprived, you'll want to eat more, which is a big issue. Now, of course, if you're not sleeping, then you're active. And if you're active, you're more likely to be raiding the refrigerator. So there's a double whammy here. If you're active, you're going to be up and likely to be eating. And of course, your whole metabolic axis is distorted by lack of sleep and you'll crave carbohydrates and particularly sugars. Well, let's move on to taking medication. It's flu season, flu and COVID vaccine season. Um, any advice on timing of that? Yes, the data is still being fully collected. But if we extrapolate from the flu studies, so there was a very important study published back in 2016. And basically, it looked at the time of day of immunization against the influenza uh, virus, the, the vaccine against the H1N1 virus. And it looked at individuals in this case, around about 70 years of age. Now, uh, individuals were either given the vaccine in the morning or in the uh, late afternoon. And if you look at the effect, the how effective the vaccine was at generating an antibody titer, then in the morning you got a titer of about 400, whereas in the afternoon the titer was 100. So, you know, a huge difference on the basis of when you had your vaccination. So I guess um, if we extrapolate from the flu studies, then morning vaccination is probably going to be more effective than afternoon vaccination. And, and there are some studies that have been published suggesting that is indeed the case. That can be complicated, though, because if you haven't slept immediately before or immediately after the vaccination, you can also hugely reduce its effectiveness. 
And this, of course, is really important for our frontline staff. You know, during COVID, they were being vaccinated, but they were probably chronically sleep deprived. And so their vaccination was far less effective uh, than if they had a good night of rest. So I think, you know, going forward and the next pandemic, we want to make sure our frontline staff, if at all possible, are rested immediately before and immediately after they get their vaccination, because then they'll be able to. These are the frontline staff. These are the individuals who are going to be um, most likely to be exposed. So they need to be the most protected. Oh, wow. Yeah, they really need those 400 times more antibodies. Yeah, that sort of vaccination. But I mean, if we think about cancer treatments, um, there's an early study, and, and, and it is fascinating why this hasn't gone into the mainstream, because here, some of the data are absolutely clear. There was a study published way back in 1993 by Rivard and colleagues, and these are children with childhood leukemia. And they were given a cocktail of drugs either in the morning or in the late afternoon uh, and early evening. And they looked at long-term survival over, I think it was about four or five years. And those that had evening chemotherapy had about a 70% survival. Those that had the morning chemotherapy, it dropped to 35% survival. So this is a massive difference just on the basis of the time of day. Other studies, for example, have looked at ovarian cancer. Um, Bill Horesky, again from the United States, has done some really exciting work in this area, showing that two schedules, Schedule A and Schedule B, different times of giving the chemo, and it looked at survival over five years. One schedule, one timing, had survival of 45%. Another schedule, at the same drug, different time, survival had dropped to 10%. So same drug, same concentration, different time, 45% survival versus 10% survival. And this is huge. So dramatic. It It is breathtaking. I mean, this is a big effect. And I suppose it goes back to your question, which is, why isn't this becoming mainstream? And I think you know, the response is, look, it's difficult enough to schedule an individual to get their chemo or their radiotherapy at whatever time. Now, if we're going to have to do it at a particular time for a particular individual, this is just overwhelming for our healthcare services. I think the future here is potentially quite exciting because we may be able to give the infusion of the chemo, not the radio, but the chemotherapy, perhaps in the home environment at using timed pumps, Yes, which would then allow you to get the chemo when you actually needed it. So I think a lot of people are now paying attention to developing the technology that will allow us to give drugs at the appropriate time. We've talked about vaccination, we've talked about chemo, but I think another area where there seems to be some very interesting issues is in stroke. So there's a 50% greater chance of having a stroke between 6am and 12 noon compared to any other time of the day. That is this dangerous window of stroke. And because it's so tightly timed, you can say, well, hang on, what can I do to reduce my chances of stroke? And so the strategy has been that many antihypertensives last in the body for quite some time. So by taking an antihypertensive before you go to bed, the antihypertensive is still around by that 6 a.m. to 12 noon danger window. So, you know, as the circadian system drives up blood pressure, then the antihypertensive can counteract that. So there's strong data suggesting that there's, you know, after 10 years, evening, taking your antihypertensive at bedtime versus taking antihypertensive first thing in the morning, there was a drop in death rate of 50% which is, again, huge. You know, I think everybody think, well, the danger zone is between 6 a.m. and 12 noon. So, you know, you should take your antihypertensive first thing in the morning when you wake up. Trouble is, you're already halfway through the danger window. And by the time the drug has been absorbed and then kicks in, you're actually past the danger window. So it sort of makes sense. So we're beginning to learn that that different drugs at different times are going to have a, a really big effect. And is this starting to take hold? Are there antihypertensives, you know, labeled for suggested evening 
dose or physicians or the NHS adopting policies like that? There are no clear policies at the moment. The advice will vary between you know uh, different GPs. You may get completely differing advice. There is no standardization with this. Uh, so it's not there yet, although the literature is becoming fairly well-developed. I mean, one further really important aspect about this, which I sort of bang on a, a lot, is in, in, in drug development. So what happens, of course, is that, and quite rightly, you test your drugs on mice, and then you extrapolate to humans. But of course, mice are nocturnal, and we are diurnal. And in one particular study, they gave a, a drug, which again was uh, associated with recoveries from stroke rather than preventing stroke with an antihypertensive. This is people who'd had a stroke, and this was reducing damage, further damage to the brain. And they induced a stroke in a mouse, gave the drug during the first part of the day, and it was fantastic. It was really effective. Um, so they then extrapolated that to humans and gave the drug to people who'd had a stroke during the first part of the day. And it didn't work at all. And then somebody realized that, of course, the beginning of the day for a mouse is when it's asleep. And the beginning of the, of the day for a human is when we wake up. And so they then said, OK, well, if we give the drug then to the mouse at the beginning of the wake phase, what happens? just like in you know, humans, it didn't work. So here's a really good example where time of day is incredibly important and we've got to extrapolate. We've got to compare like with like when we extrapolate from our drug testing in mice to humans. And it's been argued that maybe there are some incredibly valuable drugs that were invested in and developed over many, many years that failed when they went to human trials because they were given at the wrong time of day. Mm. So I think the drug companies may well be missing a trick. Now, what they'll say is, oh, no, no, no. what we do is develop drugs with a very, very long half-life. So they will be around when the the timed crisis occurs. But of course, you then say, well, hang on, you're giving a drug at a higher concentration than you need for a longer time than you need to intersect with the timed issue. And of course, what that will do is increase the chances of side effects. And as anybody knows, if you go on one drug, you're often on other drugs to deal with the side effects. I don't think it's good enough to say, well, we just produce a drug with a long half-life. We've got to use precision drug taking to actually intersect with the circadian changes in health crises. Mm, excellent. Yeah, precision drug taking. And also, to your earlier point, Precision medicine, it's a new meaning of precision medicine if individuals can take their chemotherapy or their drugs consistent with their own chronotype, what's best for them. Well, I, absolutely. I think for most of us, it won't matter. But if you're a morning type, an extreme morning type or an extreme eating type, then, you know, you should be able to adjust your chemo appropriately. But for all of us, we need to get, you know, certainly uh, some chemo drugs at the right biological time. So let's Talk a little bit about ideas for employers, um, particularly for those with shift workers, because you've suggested that there are things that could be done to alleviate some of the damage. I think so. I mean, I think it would be absolutely absurd for me to say we shouldn't do night shift work and, and put the 24-7 you know, genie back in its bottle. It's here to stay. But what we can do is develop interventions that will mitigate some of the side effects and some of the problems associated with driving our biology outside of its normal range, as in night shift work. So if we think about, and we've touched on some of these, the loss of vigilance on the, on the drive home, you know, those junior doctors crashing into cars in the early hours of the morning. Why aren't we downloading an app onto our smartphone, clipping it to the dashboard that can tell us if we're showing a head nod or the car is moving laterally and sets off an alarm. And of course, high-end uh, uh, cars are, are now having this technology built into it. So, you know, you can you know if you're falling asleep at the wheel. That's something we could do now. The poor physical and mental health associated with night shift work, we should be having higher frequency health checks to detect these problems before they become chronic. You know, higher rates of obesity, type 2 diabetes, metabolic abnormalities for night shift workers. Well, what's the food available for these individuals? It's high fat, it's high sugar, and, you know, vending machines full of sugar-rich candy bars. Um, and we should actually be giving a healthy food option to our night shift workers. Fast food is not the option here. It's going to make things much worse. 
to my knowledge, and I think there's a really good marketing opportunity here to develop a high protein, easy to digest snack for night shift workers, the healthy alternative when you're working through the night. The failure to appreciate the consequences of night shift work, both by the employee and the people they live with. It's worth pointing out that the divorce rate for night shift workers in some sectors can be six times higher than the same job during the day shift. And of course, what happens is that, you know, as we discussed, you're driving your biology outside of its normal range, your cognitive and emotional responses become decimated. Your partner thinks you've turned into a monster. And indeed you have, but that's the inevitable consequence of doing night shift work for most people. And, and people need to be aware of this. And I think where possible, give people some slack. This is a really demanding job. And I think the partnerships need to appreciate that there will be changes in behavior and to accommodate that behavior where it's appropriate. Why don't we chronotype our workforce? So the late types go on the late shift and the morning types go on the morning shift. What you want to avoid, of course, is a late type actually being put on the morning shift. And at the moment, allocation is completely random. Now, it's not the whole answer, but it will actually mitigate some of the problems. And the other, I think, really important point is that some of the severe pathologies that we've talked about, such as cancer, such as coronary heart disease, such as type 2 diabetes, develop over time. It may well be that we should limit night shift work to four or five years and then rotate people onto the day shift and then maybe back onto the night shift later on. The difficulty is, of course, finance. Most people don't want to do night shift work, but for economic reasons, they have to. And I think this is a huge dilemma because many people with poor sleep are in a lower socioeconomic group. They have very little voice. They are the ones that are disproportionately affected. Not just adults, I might add. We did a study a few years ago on early teenagers. And one of the questions we asked them was, do you share your sleeping space? you share your bedroom with anybody else, you know, assuming there was going to be multiple occupancy of the bedroom. What we didn't ask is, do you have a bed? And what we discovered, and this is our appalling naivety, was that many children from a lower socioeconomic group don't have a bed. They're trying to sleep on the family sofa while the family are watching television late into the evening. These kids then go to school the next day, they can't make full advantage of their educational opportunities. And they're already being marginalized from society because of their poor sleep. And I think that's something that we have been slow to recognize and we must pay some attention to. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, that's, you think of the TVs on all night and yeah, the impact that's having on kids and adults. But I don't want it all to be doom and gloom because, you know, there are things we can do that we've talked about what an employer can do to, you know, as a duty of care, I think, uh, to help the workforce. But we can do things, um, getting morning light, for example, making sure the clock is set uh, for most of us, avoid excessive consumption of caffeinated drinks in the afternoon, which will keep us awake. And I think critically that stepping back at the end of the day to relax reducing light levels so it's not so much the levels domestic light levels will shift the biological clock but it will increase alertness and therefore delay sleep onset so try and keep the light levels low don't use alcohol as a sedative or indeed antihistamines you know try and avoid sort of sleeping agents try and get into the right sort of mindset whereby you can improve your sleep one thing <laughs> which I think is a real dilemma, and I sort of chuckle because of, of my personal circumstances, is that for many couples, the only time you get to really talk to each other is at the end of the day where you're lying in bed. And then, of course, you know, subjects like family finances or whatever surface. So we've banned the discussion of anything stressful before we go to sleep. But I think that's actually something that's sensible. You timetable it, but it's not just before you're going to sleep. Mm -hmm. The bedroom shouldn't be too warm. We touched on this earlier. That drop in core body temperature is important for sleep initiation. And if the bedroom is too hot, then that could be an issue. 
of course it's getting televisions it's getting electronic media out of the bedroom been hugely difficult lockdown bedrooms became offices and we we haven't actually got rid of all of that work paraphernalia from our sleeping space and ideally we should if we can don't clock watch so many of us may wake up in the middle of the night, and we'll, we'll come to that in a moment, and uh, see an illuminated uh, alarm clock and think, oh my goodness, I've only got two hours before the alarm goes off, and then get all stressed and not then fall back to sleep again. So my recommendation is don't have an illuminated alarm clock. An alarm clock, yes, and it's important, you know, uh, if you need an alarm clock, it just it goes off, but you don't need to know that it's two hours before it goes off. I think keeping a, a good bedtime routine go to bed and get up ideally at the same time every day if you can we brits i have to say i think we're not great at spending money on decent mattresses beds and pillows i don't i'm not sure about the united states but i do think we need to take our beds more seriously 30 percent of our lives will be spent asleep in bed ideally so we need to indulge in something that helps us sleep. And, you know, it's worth trying different things out. Go to the showrooms, try these things out. One thing that people tell me increasingly, it's defining the sleeping space very clearly. And you can do that using smell. So lavender, for example. Some people will have low levels of lavender because you go into the bedroom and think, aha, and you associate that smell with sleep time which I think can be quite useful. We've talked about earplugs. If your partner snores, it's worth bearing in mind that you need to make sure they don't have obstructive sleep apnea. You can tell that uh, if they stop actually breathing for a while and then they start and they have these great big sort of gasping sort of intakes. If you detect what you think could be obstructive sleep apnea in a partner, they must get that sorted out. There are significant health problems otherwise. And we talked about, um, you know, an alternate sleeping space. It's not a reflection on the quality of the relationship. And then finally, I would say that some beautiful work by Roger Eckert has, from historical records, and then Tom Weir, more recently in the lab, have shown that the human sleep pattern is not a single uninterrupted eight-hour block, but it's been called either biphasic or polyphasic, whereas you go to sleep, you may be asleep for an hour or so, you may wake up, you may become conscious that you've woken up or not, you go back to sleep again, and you may go through several of these sleep-wake cycles every night. The problem is that most people don't know that that's the natural state. They'll wake up, think, oh my goodness, that's it, I might as well start drinking coffee and doing emails, and get all stressy about it. Um, whereas if you stay quiet, if you keep the lights low, you read a favorite few pages of your favorite novel, um, and then chances are you will fall back to sleep again. The key thing is not to get stressed. It's a great treat to have an Oxford University researcher who understands all the mice studies and can explain them, um, you know, so the rest of us can really benefit. I also really appreciated some of the wonderful quotes in your book. Um, one of them, the Mahatma Gandhi, the future depends on what you do today. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And I'd yes. love for you to close us out by reading the last sentence of your book. Okay. The lives of both wise and foolish people all end in death. But the circadian wise will, on balance, live longer, be happier, and lead more fulfilled lives. Thank you so much for that. And thank you so much for being with us today. It was a great pleasure getting to know you. The honor is mine. It's so exciting that you wanted to take this subject seriously and engage with your listenership. I've been speaking with Professor Russell Foster, author of Lifetime, The New Science of the Body Clock and How It Can Revolutionize Your Sleep and Health. For more information on the fundamentals of sleep hygiene and health, check out our 2022 podcast, The Social and Emotional Tax of Sleep Loss. I'm Luann Heinen, and this podcast is produced by Business Group on Health with Connected Social Media. You can help support the podcast by sharing with colleagues and leaving a review.